So how is your hearing? How's your hearing? Stories told of two friends that were walking around in Times Square in New York City one day. It was around the lunchtime hour, so it was packed with people. I mean, people everywhere, cars blowing their horns, taxis flying up and down the road, sirens all over the place. It was, it was a loud time in the city. And one of the friends turned to his other friend and he said, man, what a strange time to hear a cricket. His friend said, what are you talking about? I can't hear no cricket. Yeah, I just, I just heard a cricket. There's no way you heard a cricket. We're in the middle of Times Square. You did not hear a cricket. He goes, I heard a cricket. I promise. And he wanted to prove it to him, so he started following the sound of the cricket. And they walked across the street, and they found this huge cement planter, and there were some shrubs in the planter, and he leaned down, and he pulled back one of the limbs, and sure enough, there was a little cricket right there underneath the shrub. His friend said, this is is incredible. You must have superhuman ears. His friend said, no, my ears are just like yours. It just all matters what's important to you and and what you're listening for. He goes, no, that's crazy. He goes, no, let me prove it to you. So his friend reached down into his pocket, grabbed some coins, and he threw the coins on the ground. And everybody around them stopped and looked toward the direction of those coins. He said, see? He said, in the middle of all of this noise, in the middle of all of this craziness, people were were listening for something, and they stopped, and they looked at those coins. They knew in the middle of the noise when money had dropped. He told his friend, see, it's, it's all what's important to you, and it's all what you're listening for. So, can you hear Christmas? There's a lot of noise right now, and, and most of it's good. Most of it's really good noise, but, but there's a lot of noise during the holidays. Can you hear Christmas? Not just talking about, you know, the, the jingle bells or, or the carols. I'm not just talking about, you know, hearing or, or listening for wrapping paper or unwrapping Christmas lights or even just listening to the sound of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. No, no. Can you hear the message that's deeper than all of that? The the deeper message of Christmas. The message that's been described as having a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope that will do something. It will bring peace to your anxious, stressed mind. A thrill of hope that will bring love to your discouraged heart, a thrill of hope that will bring joy to your soul that is worn out and weary. Can you hear that hope? Can you hear that message? And and how do you do that? How, How can you hear the message of Christmas? Well, let's see if we can find out. Apostle Paul was writing to his friends in a place called Philippi. He wrote to them saying this, beginning in chapter 4, verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. What can you do if you're not completely sure that you're buying someone the, the right gift? Well, you can get a gift receipt. And then that person can go back 
And they can use that gift receipt and, and go up to customer service and they can say, can I exchange this for a different color? Can I exchange this for a different size? Or maybe they just return it all together and, and go back and get them a, a Belgian waffle maker or a bacon express grill, which this is a real thing. I'm looking into it right now. You know, they, they may exchange it or they may return it. Well, in some ways, Paul, this is his gift receipt. Not because something has to be exchanged or returned, but because something needs to be affirmed. He's wanting these folks to know, hey, I got it. I got the present that you sent me, and I got the present that you sent through Epaphroditus. I got it. Well, who is Epaphroditus? Well, we don't have a, a David McCullough biography on Epaphroditus. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know that he just seems to be kind of a regular guy in the church who wanted to follow Jesus, wanted to love Jesus, wanted to serve Jesus, and wanted to serve the church. And so the church, they sent him with this gift, and they said, look, we want you to go find Paul in Rome, we want you to, to give him this gift, and then we want you to stay, and we want you to hang out and help him. So we have a message, we have a gift, and we have a helper. That, that's who Epaphroditus is. And the reality is that's who we are, Right? If we profess to be Christians, we have a, a message, we have a gift, and we're supposed to be helping. We have the message of the gospel. We have the, the gift of knowing Jesus, and we're supposed to be helping people find that gift. So of all the things that you might do in your life, whatever titles you might have, whatever your job or your career is or may have been, whatever titles you have in your home, ultimately we as Christians have kind of this shared idea here. We are supposed to help people find the gift of Jesus. That's our purpose in life. Epaphroditus was a guy who made sure that he was living out that purpose. He was helping the message of Jesus spread. Jack and Kim are old friends of ours for about a decade. They served as missionaries in North Africa through the International Mission Board. Our Lottie Moon Christmas offering is, is part of the reason they were able to go those years ago. And while they were on the mission field, they had uh, their six precious kids with them. And, and their home church in Hampton, Virginia, where I used to serve, they would, they would send uh, groups all year long uh, to go help out with their work there in North Africa. And then there was Peggy. And I may have told you about Peggy before, I can't remember. But Peggy would go not with the group, she would usually go by herself. She would leave Hampton, Virginia, sometimes once a year, and she would go and, and she would spend two to three weeks sometimes with their family. She didn't go to pass out tracts. She didn't go to evangelize anyone. She didn't go to do vacation Bible school in the village. She didn't go to help build anything. Peggy went for one reason, and that was just to encourage Kim. That's what she did. She left her life in Virginia just to go encourage this young mother on the mission field. That was her purpose. She took the message of the gospel. She took her love for Jesus, and she went and helped Kim as Kim was helping the world in that area find Jesus for the first time. I would love that we would all be Peggy's. That we would look at the gospel, we would look at ministry, we would look at the church, and we would say, you know what, I'm just going to do what I can to help. I'm going to do what I can to, to serve. I'm going to take the message of the gospel, I'm going to take this gift of Jesus in my heart, and I'm going to serve and encourage the pastors, and serve and encourage the staff, and serve and encourage my fellow church members. I'm going to serve and encourage other believers, whether they're in Casey, West Columbia, Winsboro, or the farthest end 
of the earth. I'm going to do what I can with the gospel that's in my heart to serve and encourage others, to help them as they follow Jesus. Because if you do, if you will, then you will be taking the message to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Peggy was doing. Peggy was making sure that that this young mom, who was in an area of the world that was very hard to exist as anything, as a human, much less as a woman, much less as a Christian missionary, a dangerous place in the world. Peggy went to help to make sure that people found out about Jesus. It's not a hard thing for us to find ways to help and to serve. And Paul said, man, I'm so glad so happy for Epaphroditus, so thankful to you folks at Philippi because y'all sent a gift and it met my needs. Matter of fact, Paul says it, it more than met his needs, right? Look how he describes it. He says, in full, abundance, and amply supplied. In other words, he's saying, look, your gift, man, it hit the mark, you know. Like a great meal at grandma's house at Christmas, this gift hit the spot. Paul gives it Huge marks. It's something that kind of kept giving. So what was it? I don't know. Maybe it was Jelly of the Month Club. You know, maybe it was an oversized hoodie blanket. Maybe it was a box of of pens and paper, which would have been huge to Paul. Or or maybe it was a box of pecan pie cookies. I don't know what they gave. But whatever they gave, it just kind of kept on giving. It was exactly what Paul needed. He was affirming them because they gave a good gift, but he didn't just say thanks for the gift. He goes on to give them kind of a five-star review. Look what he says next in verse 18. He says, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. (laughs) There's your new line on Christmas morning. Thank you so much for these socks. They are a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, and well-pleasing to God. But that's how he describes this gift. He's just overwhelmed with it. Now, when he says fragrant aroma, he's, he's not talking about a Yankee candle, not talking about an essential oil diffuser that you put on the counter. No, he's, he's talking about something completely different. He's pulling language and pictures from the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, when a, a sacrifice was brought, it was, it was put on the burnt altar, and the aroma of that sacrifice would, would fill up the community. It is very similar to what happens to me sometimes when I walk out the end door down here in the building. And true barbecue, oh man, you know, it's just, they are filling the neighborhood with the aroma, the sweet, savoring aroma of their menu all over town. You know, you, you, can, you can smell it. Paul's saying, this, this gift you gave, it's, it's this aroma in my life. I'm sitting here in prison. My freedoms have been taken away from me, but I have this, this amazing aroma of love and care and your sharing to me. That's a cool way to say thanks for a gift, right? But your, your gift, is, it is just this aroma in the midst of what feels tremendously hard. Paul says it was a fragrant aroma, and then he says it was an acceptable sacrifice. It cost them something, you know. It's not just like they you know, stopped at the kiosk as they're riding through the grocery store and just got them a little gift card. No, this, this is something that required something from them. It was some type of sacrifice, either practically or financially. It was almost as if maybe they had $25,000 in the church account and they sent Epaphroditus with $24,900. You know, they, they felt it. 
It wasn't just some, some small thing. Or maybe they didn't have any money. Maybe they had church property. And they said, you know, we really need to help with the gospel. Let's just sell that property. And I know we were going to, you know, build a new gym on it or, you know, build a, build a new family life center, whatever. But you know what? Let's just sell that property. Let's give that money to the work of the gospel. Let's send that on to Paul. I know a church that when they first started, they made a commitment to not have a, a building of their own. And the reason why is they just felt like that, that it was going to be a huge expense for the things that they were trying to do. And so they said, you know what, we would just love to not have that maintenance expense, and we want to give that money to the work of the gospel in places where nobody has ever heard of Jesus. And I think in their early years, there were several years where they gave like $300,000 to the work of the gospel in places where never by, no one had ever heard the name of Jesus. There was some kind of sacrifice the Philippians made. We don't know exactly what it was, but it cost them something. Paul says, I appreciate your, your sacrifice. And although we don't know the details, we know that based on what Paul's saying, their sacrifice was pleasing to God, because that's what he says. He says, your sacrifice, man, it, it is a fragrant aroma, and it pleases God. Well, how did we know that, that it pleased God? Well, let me see if I can say it somewhat practical here. I am, am so thankful for you. So many of you and the way that you faithfully give to our church. It allows our church to care for the work of the gospel, to care for, for the building and our campus, to, to care for our staff and their families, to care for the mission support that we have here in this community and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I thank you so much for the way that you steadily, sacrificially give to the work of the gospel here at Holland Avenue. I love how one pastor described this. He said, your giving is your offering and your sacrifice to the Lord. And then he says this, and it speaks well of the seriousness of your faith. That is extremely cool. It's an amazing thing for a pastor to be able to say, thank you so much for the way you give because it speaks to the seriousness of your faith. And can I just say, it is an honor for me to pastor a church of people who are serious about their faith just through the way that they steadily give. What a glorious thing that we can say together. You know what? We are serious in our faith. We, we're giving, we're sacrificing because we have this message, we have this gift, and we want to be a help to the work of the gospel. So thank you, and, and I truly praise the Lord for you. Paul was, was praising the Lord for his folks down in Philippi because here's the deal. He could have said this different. He could have said, hey, your, your gift is a fragrant aroma. Thank you for your sacrifice, but he could have left off the last part. He could have said, nah, it's not really well-pleasing to God. You know why? Because they could have given it with pride or arrogance, right? Like, like a political donation to a candidate. You know, sometimes it's given in the hopes that, hey, maybe later on there'll be a little, a little favor, you know, my way. And sometimes gifts are even given to the church that way. Hey, you know, maybe, maybe later on a little favor. Or, hey, maybe let's get my name in the bulletin or, or put it on a plaque somewhere or let's put it on the front of the building. But Paul says that, that the way they gave, it was well-pleasing to God because they gave just like you're giving with the right attitude, uh, with joyful humility. That, that, that's what Paul sees in the Philippians' gift. We just want to be a part of the gospel. Whatever that looks like, we just want to be a part of the gospel. And we're going to sacrifice here because we think the name of Jesus is that important. 
They gave with the right attitude. They gave with joyful humility. And thank you for for following after the Philippians and, and doing the same. Paul gives his receipt. He describes the impact of their gift with some fantastic language, a a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice, something that's well-pleasing to God. And then he really kicks the encouragement up a little bit. Look what he says in verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs. This is an amazing sentence. Paul is taking God out of, you know, just religious chatter. He's taking God out of some existential conversation on spirituality. And he's saying, this God is my God. This God is is my God. Why does that matter? This is what the Scripture says, Isaiah 46. This is how God speaks of himself. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done same. And listen to what the Lord says. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And Paul says, that God is my God, the one that looks out at the universe, that looks out at history and says, whatever I have planned will not be tabled. Whatever I have planned will not be put on the shelf. Whatever I have planned will never be impeached. The God of the universe will not be thwarted from his plan. And Paul says, yep, that's my God. That that's my God. This is the language the Bible uses for God. It says that he is perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in power. He's perfect in, in holiness and justice and goodness and love. The Bible says that God is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he is infinite, that he is eternal, and he is unchangeable. Unchangeable. No term limits with God. And Paul says, yep, that's my God. That's my God. He's writing to his friends, encouraging him. He goes, that God, my God, he will supply all your needs. John Gwynn Thomas said this. Paul was talking about a God whom he knew. The one who had changed the course of his life. The one who had changed the quality of his life. The one who had changed the destiny of his life. The one who had changed the whole of his thinking about the world, about eternity, about everything in the world. Paul said, this God whom I have come to know, he is my God. And then he says this, I wonder, can we speak in these terms Because this is the great aim of Christianity, to bring us into a personal, living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't do that, then I don't know what else it does. So, has the aim of Christianity found you? Has this God that that Paul speaks of, has he changed your life? 
Has he changed the way you look at the entire world, the the way you watch the news, the way you read the news, the way you scroll through your social media feed? Has this God changed how you think about everything in your life? Jeff Thomas writes this, A master surgeon can offer to remove the cancer or give me a heart bypass or take away the cataracts from my eyes and give me sight, but those are only offers. Have I accepted God's offer and acted upon it? Has this God become my God? Has this Savior become my Savior? Has he become my prophet, priest, and king? God has loved the world, true, but I can still perish unless I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I come to God? Have I taken Christ? Have I responded to that proffered love that says to me, come and I will give you rest? And he says this, No one here shall perish because God is not love. No one here shall perish because God has failed to offer himself lovingly and sincerely to any of you. But men shall perish because that love is spurned. Don't spurn the love of God. For for your proud, arrogant heart, come to Jesus and take his rest. For your tired, worn, weary heart, hear the message the choir sang. There is no sorrow on earth that heaven can't heal. None. Come to Jesus and take on his rest for your tired, worn out, weary soul. 132 years ago, William T. Sleeper wrote a poem that ultimately was set to music that we sing from time to time, and and these were some of the words of his poem. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, out of my sickness, out of my want, out of my sin, out of my shameful failure and loss. Hearing yourself yet? Out of earth's sorrows, out of life's storms, out of distress, out of unrest and arrogant pride, out of myself, out of despair, out of the fear and the dread of the tomb. Frank, thank you, brother, for just reminding us earlier of that reality for our lives. But until that reality is a reality, we have Jesus today. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, out of the depths of ruin untold, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of all of it, Jesus, I come to thee. Is this the moment in history that you need to come to Jesus? Is this the moment that you need to to turn from your sin and, and realize that God has supplied the help that you need the most? That he's supplied the promise of eternal life? That he's supplied the guarantee of freedom from the chains of sin if you come to him today? Jesus 
I come to thee. Now, someone might be thinking, well, if God is going to supply all of my needs, if that's true, then I don't really need Jesus. Now, what I really need is I need better health care. I need a better job. I need a nicer husband. I need a, a more loving wife. I need more respectful children. I need a more responsible government. Yeah, I need some stuff, but it's, it's not Jesus. How is me coming to Jesus really going to solve the problems of my life? Well, Paul has an answer to that, but before we get to that answer, let me just do some quick math for our hearts and minds. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to some folks in this place called Philippi, and what those folks did was they said, you know what, we need to do something for the gospel. Hey, let's, let's send something to Paul. And it was a sacrifice for them to do it. And so now they're, they're needing to hear the second part. Hey, they have given sacrificially, not really sure how that's going to work out. And Paul said, hey, don't worry about it. Because you gave sacrificially, God's going to meet your need. And, and that's an important part. And see, if, if you're sitting at home at the recliner and you have absolutely nothing to do with the work of the gospel, then don't expect God to drop that gospel powerball in your lap just because you think you might deserve it. And even if you are engaged in the work of the gospel, don't think that that means you automatically get a life of, of health and wealth and prosperity. Just, just a few sentences back, Paul says, I know what it means to be hungry and thirsty. This guy is arguably the greatest Christian that has ever lived on the earth. Sorry to offend you, but Paul's a better Christian than all of us. And he says, you know what? I've been beaten. I've been tortured. I've been thrown in jail. I know what it means to go without. In other words, the modern health and wealth and prosperity gospel does not match the Bible. You just can't match them up with the whole of Scripture. And so when Paul says God's going to supply your need, Remember, the old phrase is, God will supply your need, not your greed. So if you have a need, he'll, he'll meet it. And let me just say this. There is a Christian somewhere in the world right now as we gather this morning. They are sitting in prison for their faith. They may not see tomorrow, and God is meeting their need. How? <laughs> What you talking about, Dow? You're losing your mind here. Think you're on too much cold medicine. You're talking foolish. What in the world? You're, you're saying I might go hungry and, and I might go thirsty and, and I might get beaten, I might get tortured, I, I might get killed, and yet God's going to supply my need. Well, how in the world is he going to do that? How is God going to supply all of my need if it means I might go without? This is Paul's answer, verse 19. And God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is going to supply your needs through Christ. And, and notice the language here. It says, according to, not out of. According to, not out of. This week, a couple of baseball players made a couple of dollars and some new contracts. One of them over the course of the next nine years, we'll get $35 million a year for playing baseball. Bless. So, so let's just imagine that he gets the $35 million, and let's say that next year he gives a million dollars to charity, okay? 
He won't even know it's gone. <laughs> he won't even feel it at all. Because he's, he's given out of, not according to. If you have $500 in, in mixed bills in your wallet, and you lose a $1 bill, you, you may not know it's gone. But if you have $500 in mixed bills in your wallet and you get up the next morning and pick up your wallet and there's only a $1 bill in your wallet, you're going to know that that money's gone. So let's say that he takes the $35 million and he gives $34 million, let's say he gives $34 million to charity and then he gives $900,000 to his local church. I'm not good on math. I think that leaves $100,000. And if so, man, he's going to feel that, right? <laughs> You go from $35 million to $100,000, you are going to feel that. The picture that Paul is painting here is that God is not giving out of his riches. He is giving according to his riches. Again, someone might be thinking, well, I don't get it then. I mean, if, if God's supposed to be God and everything, I mean, if, if he's the, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry, if he's the one that, you know, is, is the God of the universe, I'm thinking he's got a couple of dollars, right? I mean, I'm thinking if he's the one true God, then, then he's got to be the wealthiest being in the universe. And if that's the case, why am I eating Van Camp's pork and beans? Come on now. If God's all that, then I'm supposed to have steak and lobster every night, right? I mean, I'm, I'm one of his children. Well, the best way to answer those questions is with a question. What is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? If your greatest need is money, you don't need Jesus. If your greatest need is an education, you don't need Jesus. If your greatest need is a job, you don't need Jesus. If your greatest need is a spouse, you don't need Jesus. If your greatest need is, is health or retirement or for your team to win the game, you don't need Jesus. R.C. Sproul said this, There is a God who is altogether holy, who is perfectly just, and who declares that he is going to judge the world and hold every human being accountable for their life. That's clearly what we see in Scripture. He goes on, As a perfectly holy and just God, he requires from each one of us a life of perfect obedience and of perfect justness. If there is such a God, and if you have lived a life of perfect justness and obedience, that is, if you're perfect, then you certainly don't need Jesus. You don't need a Savior because only unjust people have a problem. So, we won't do a show of hands, but anybody here been perfectly obedient and perfectly just? Anybody here perfectly obeyed your parents all the time? Anybody perfectly obeyed your teachers all the time? Anybody perfectly obeyed the, the statutes of our country? Anybody perfectly obeyed the speed laws in our community? Anybody perfectly obeyed all of the tax laws from the IRS? Anybody here perfectly loved other people and perfectly honored the planet that we live on? Anybody here perfectly loved the God of the universe who created you? If not, then you have a problem. <laughs> but there's a solution to the problem. 
And as a matter of fact, this solution has been given to the entire world, but especially it's been given to you. This is the solution. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Whatever you have as a need in your life right now, just put it in your mind. And it doesn't mean that any of your practical or financial or physical needs are wrong. It doesn't. But the reality is none of those things are your greatest need. Do we as believers need to start meeting practical needs? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of dumb for us to go up to someone who's hungry and say, well, Jesus loved you. See you later, bud. Now we feed them and then we tell them about Jesus. But the reality, is, and F.B. Myers has put it perfectly. He said it this way. Christ is God's answer to our need. Period, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Do you need your spouse to be more helpful? Sure. Do you need your spouse to be more loving? Sure. Do you need your kids to be more loving and helpful? Sure. Do you need your boss and your fellow employees and your fellow church members and your politicians to be more loving and more helpful? Sure. But your greatest need and my greatest need is to be saved. It's our greatest need. And 2,000 years ago in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, God, because of his rich mercy, met your need in Jesus. God meets our needs through Jesus. One of the most beloved songs of Christmas was written in 1847 by a French merchant. A local minister had, had heard and, and known that he was good at writing poetry, and he asked him to write a Christmas poem for the church. And so as the story goes, he, he wrote the, the poem in a carriage riding down the road using Luke 2, as his, as, well, all of Luke really is his inspiration, so to speak, for his, his poem. And he finished the poem up, and he went and found a friend and said, hey, man, can you put some music to this? And then they presented it to the minister at the church, and, and the song was sung. Interestingly, though, most of the church leaders during that time said that the song was unfit for a church service. Now, just a, a gracious reminder for us. Just because a newer church song or an older church song doesn't tickle your fancy, doesn't mean your opinion's right. <laughs> and that's true for me, too. Back then, they said, man, this song, <laughs> we ain't singing that in church. It's unfit. And do you know that you've already heard it twice this morning? <laughs> so, Dally, it's, it's fit now. The people of the church loved the song, though. Church leaders didn't like it, but the people of the church, they loved it. And then other people outside of that one church, they heard it, and boy, they loved it. And it spread all over the country super fast. And then it, it crossed the seas, came over to, to our country. And eight years after the poem was written, an American minister translated it into an English version. And that, that's the one we sing today. 
But, but it seems to be a true English version and not a literal English translation. An English version, not a, a translation. But I came across a, a translation from the French to the English, and, and I just thought it might be helpful for our hearts and minds today. The song is, is O Holy Night, and, and this is the, the literal translation. Midnight, Christians, is the solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his Father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a Savior. And then we hear what? Fall on your knees, oh hear the angel voices. But, but here's the literal translation. People kneel down. Await your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas here is the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas here is the Redeemer. Friend, that is the, the beautiful, glorious, wonderful fantastic, saving message of Christmas. Can you hear it? Can you hear it?